welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Thank you for joining me. As we begin, I want to commend to you the introduction to this podcast, listed immediately before this episode. And if that's too much trouble, here's a wee summary. I'm sharing the basic outline of a Master of Divinity degree, Bible, history, ethics, systematic theology, and practical theology, specifically worship. In the introduction, I gave a thumbnail sketch of these, and I added a few caveats for good measure. Course one of the podcast is an introduction to the Bible, divided into three sections that I'll explain in a moment. But before we begin, I should add one more caveat uh, about the language used to describe our topic. It may seem that I use the words Bible and Scripture more or less interchangeably, but there is an important difference. The word Bible means a collection of books, which is exactly what the Christian Bible is. The word Bible has also come to mean a comprehensive look at something, like the Fisherman's Bible, for example. Scripture, on the other hand, uh, means uh, a piece of sacred writing with meaning to the reader. Much of our conversation will approach the Bible as scripture, even if there are moments when we seem to be doing the kind of analysis that they might be doing in a non-religious setting, like the religious studies department of most universities. It seems ironic, but it's not really. It just reminds us that we can study the Bible from a non-religious or a non-confessional angle. I will no doubt say more about this later. So let's begin. Scribes and scholars have long talked about the generative capacity of the Bible, meaning its ability to speak to us in new ways over time to generate new meaning. In part, this may be a result of changes within ourselves. We, we learn and grow and meet scripture from this new place. That's part. But the rest is the work of the Holy Spirit, reframing our view, refocusing our attention, and renewing our understanding. And from the perspective of the preacher, it's impossible to preach unless the Spirit generates new meaning, sometimes week by week. So if you've done a course on the Bible in the past, or you're a regular student of Scripture, I expect some of this may be quite familiar. Having said that, I hope that through the generative capacity of the Bible, you will find new meaning. And for those approaching this material for the first time, I hope that you will also be guided by the Spirit to see Scripture in a new way. To begin, I want to share a passage from St. Paul, centering ourselves as we get underway. I'm reading from Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Glorious One, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know God better. So before we get to the initial confession stage of the study, Here's a, a bit of an overview. In section one, called A Drama in Three Acts, we'll examine the overarching themes that create the foundation of the Bible. 
we will create a lens to view what we read in Scripture. In section two, Ancient Words, uh, we'll take our Bibles apart, looking at original languages, sources, translations, and the various tools we can use to understand the Bible. In section three, called The Bible as Sacred Literature, we'll review the literary forms found in Scripture. And finally, in section four, The Bible as Scripture, we will examine how such a vast and complex set of books can nurture our faith and help us experience God in new ways. As I noted in the introduction, it's unlikely that there will be a neat intersection between these sections and episodes. Generally, it shouldn't matter, meaning uh, we'll get there when we get there, something I used to tell my kids before a long car trip. So, buckle up. Okay, now we've reached the confession stage. Early in the year 2000, after 10 years in ministry, I resolved to read the entire Bible. I'd read much of it, having followed the three-year cycle of worship readings over three times at that point, but I had never sat down to read the whole thing. So I bought a copy of the New Living Translation that was neatly divided into 365 portions, each portion taking uh, between 20 and 30 minutes to read. Without wanting to offend, I, I need to confess that what I discovered was often violent, sometimes boring, and in serious need of editing. I learned that the places where people traditionally begin to read are the very last places they should do so, and the best bits are often lost in a sea of extraneous words. I, I can recall one day in particular, after reading a lengthy section on what to do if you discover that you're covered in sores, uh, I nearly quit. But I stuck with it, and about a year after I began, I was finished. In a moment, I'm going to pose my first couple of questions, something that will happen throughout this podcast. So if you're listening with a friend, perhaps you might like to pause the recording and, and chat a bit. If you're alone, uh, maybe you can also pause for a moment of quiet reflection or talk to yourself, whatever works. Here are the first questions. One, I gave my confession. So what can you confess related to reading the Bible? Uh, and two, what has been your experience of reading the Bible? You can pause here or just plow ahead. As I begin to share my outline of this first section called A Drama in Three Acts, uh, I can further confess that it's an oversimplification of sorts and that simplicity, uh, the simplicity of three, uh, is an aid to remembering and understanding and not a definitive look at Scripture. I hope that when we are finished, you will agree that our three themes inform much of the biblical record. So our three acts, our three themes, are as follows. Exodus, Exile, and Emmanuel. It is my belief that these three themes provide a type of lens that will help us understand God's activity in the world. Also, I hope these themes will shed light on much of the story of our faith. Exodus, exile, and Emmanuel will, I hope, become themes that we can also relate to today. Uh, 
the continuing desire for liberation, exodus, or a sense of disconnection from the society that we live in, exile, and finally, God's entrance into human life through Jesus Christ, named Emmanuel. We begin, then, with the theme of Exodus. Who has seen the movie The Ten Commandments? What was the most memorable scene for you? Pause here if you wish. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Exodus in understanding the Bible. It is the narrative that informs and defines the consciousness of the rest of the text, and its impact continues to echo through the ages. I want to share with you some examples. Uh, in Walter Brueggemann's classic book, The Prophetic Imagination, uh, he writes the following. The program of Moses is not the freeing of a little band of slaves as an escape from the empire, though that is important enough, especially if you happen to be that little band. Rather, his work is nothing less than an assault on the consciousness of the empire, aimed at nothing less than dismantling the empire, both in its social practices and its mythic pretensions. Israel emerged as a genuine alternate community. What do you think he means by a genuine alternate community? community. Does your faith group, if you have one, act as an alternate community? Pause here if you dare. In some ways, the Brueggemann quote sums up much of his scholarship, understanding the nature of empire, finding models of resistance, and creating an alternate community under the direction of the law and the prophets. So still on the theme of Exodus, I give you another classic, uh, an excerpt from A Theology of Liberation uh, by Gustavo Gutierrez. He writes, Behind these texts, we can see the principal reasons for this vigorous repudiation of poverty. In the first place, poverty contradicts the very meaning of the Mosaic religion. Moses led his people out of slavery, exploitation, and alienation of Egypt so that they might inhabit a land where they could live with human dignity. I would say that Latin American liberation theology, arguably the Roman Catholic Church's most significant contribution to modern theology, is rooted in the understanding that the God who liberates the people from Pharaoh will certainly liberate the poor of Bogota or Managua or San Salvador. Where else in the Bible does God defend the poor? Here's another place to pause, perhaps. To conclude this tour of some of my favorite scholars, I give you Rosemary Radford Ruther, leading feminist theologian. She wrote these words. In the story of the Exodus, we find that the first acts of rebellion against Pharaoh are those of women. The mother of Moses refuses to obey the decree to kill her newborn son and hides him in the bulrushes. The sister of Moses seizes the opportunity to save him by presenting him to the daughter of Pharaoh, who comes to the river to bathe. Pharaoh's daughter also disobeys by accepting the Hebrew child and bringing him up as her own. Thus, a conspiracy of women takes place across class and ethnic lines to save the child 
who will be the liberator of Israel. So from imperialism to poverty in Latin America to the oppression of women, the story of Exodus has informed the human desire for liberation and justice since the beginning of Western civilization. The impulse to resist tyranny and question authority is based on this narrative. The rich tradition of the African-American spiritual in songs such as Go Down Moses with its haunting refrain, Let My People Go, typify this theme. The songs of African-American slaves were used both as solace and in some cases as coded messages to escape. Another couple of questions. What else does God want to liberate us from? And what else might move God to act? As we conclude, you may ask about Adam and Eve, Noah, the patriarchs, and all the other things that happened before Moses. They are, in many ways, setting the scene for the Exodus narrative, which includes the giving of the law. Listen to Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. The promise to make Abraham the father of a great nation was on pretty shaky ground, along with the promise of a unique relationship between God and these chosen people. The Exodus narrative becomes the defining moment between the prehistory of the patriarchal period and the history of escape from oppression. This, of course, leads to the law at Mount Sinai and the ultimate entry into the Promised Land. And Moses is the dominant figure throughout. So we'll end for now, uh, ready to enter the Promised Land uh, in the next episode, and ready to do all the things that will lead to exile. Um, there will be a happy ending at the end of exile. It's just going to take a long time. I expect, Moses said more than once, we'll get there when we get there. Thank you for joining me.